product-led family with us is Jason Silver, an accomplished growth expert, COO, and entrepreneur who is on a quest to empower more people to quietly crushing it to enjoy doing the hard things. Previously, Jason led growth at Airbnb. He has founded multiple startups and is a strategic advisor and integrate AI. He advises founders and executives on how to build great teams and companies that people love working for. His career led him to start thinking about leadership and management differently and ultimately live a happier and more fulfilling life. Leadership can be loud and exhausting. It can lead to burnout and becoming a person that you don't necessarily wish to become. There is another way. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time and being on this podcast. What a life you've had. What a career you've had. Could you walk us through like the main milestones that you think are relevant for product-led audience? Yeah, sure. So thanks a ton for having me. First of all, it's uh, super great and appreciate all the kind words. Um, so, okay, cool. My background is in engineering. I did a master's in engineering. I worked as an engineer for a really for, for a little while. Realized I was um, actually very interested in business. Like I wanted to understand what happens when you come up with a great product. How do you turn that into an incredible uh, business? I didn't want to go back to school and do an MBA. I, I had done quite a lot of school, in my opinion, by that point, and I wound up getting very lucky. I got what I would call like a practical MBA. I found uh, a startup. The CEO kind of took me under his wing, put me in all sorts of different positions that were way above my pay grade at the time, just told me kind of sit here, take notes. And I got a lot of really good exposure to fundraising, commercialization agreements, partnerships, things like that. Really fun time. I got really hooked in the idea of startups. Wound up founding my own, did okay with that one, wanted to go bigger, uh, founded another company, raced, uh, did the whole VC thing, crashed the company which is probably a conversation for uh, another podcast. Happy to talk about it. Very challenging experience, but one um, one I wouldn't trade. I learned learned a lot from it. Got very fortunate. One of my investors whose money I almost entirely lost, I guess, thought enough of me that um, he introduced me to some folks and said, hey, I think you should meet with these people. You might, um, you might find it interesting. That wound up being the team at Airbnb. So I'm there in the early days to lead growth in Canada, which is where I was living at the time. Got to experience the whole Silicon Valley unicorn up and to the right. The growth was, uh, you know, really incredible. The Airbnb was past the startup stage when I joined, but it was a few hundred people and I got to experience up to like thousands of people. Decided I wanted to go back to the startup space, founded another company or there was a company that had already been founded. I joined when there was half a slide deck and uh, two other people. No customers, no product, nothing like that. Love the early stage. Kind of built that company up and then transitioned into what I'm doing now, which is feel very fortunate to work with founders and their executive teams, um, helping them build their companies, build their teams. That's the Coles Notes version, I guess. That's a mind-blowing introduction. Just one uh, side thought. I was just like reflecting on this, like you being engineer, and this is a weird hypothesis that I have and feel free to okay. argue because this will be interesting. I always uh, do. Go for it. <laughs> Go ahead. Critical thinking. That's our spiel. So the thing is that I genuinely think that if like a technical person or a developer who doesn't have like huge aversion towards marketing or sales could do so much in product-led space because they apparently understand the product. And for us, like coming from economics background, it's much more difficult to literally learn tech than just like know that much about business models and just like how things work and like at the end of the day, we are all using scientific methods. So tell me, like, what drove you to the business? Like, what was interesting for you? Oh, great question. Finally. 
<laughs> it's the first one. So I think it was, I was really interested in the uh, people aspect of it. You know, engineering taught me a lot about like, how do you build a thing? And I became very interested in like, how do you build a team around a thing, right? Nobody can do a thing on their own. You need to have the right skill sets around the table. How do you put that group of people together and actually be successful at something? And I often got questions earlier on in my career about, you know, don't you feel you did all this engineering school and you spent all this time as an engineer? Like, isn't it all wasted? Like, why did you do But that? for a mom. <laughs> yeah. You know, lots of questions that sounded like that. And, you know, what I always felt and, and still feel is the fact that I have a technical background makes me, I believe, better at business. Yes. And and this, this the opposite can be true. I think it's just about what you're really interested in doing. And for me, I was genuinely interested in like, how do you sort out team dynamics, build a team, think about the people that are going to buy your product and having an understanding of the technical side of it. You know, I was never the most technical um, in the room, but I was rarely the least. And I think that that's really helpful when you're in a business setting to be able to uh, not just think through the go-to-market strategy, but the implications to the technical team. What's that going to look like? How long might it might it take? What capabilities might we need to have? So I, I'm grateful for the time I spent in engineering. You know, I always say like it, it taught me how to think, even though I apply that in a in a different way than maybe I thought I was going to when I was in uh, engineering school. Well, that's literally so awesome and so interesting to hear because here I have a little anecdote. So when I was in college, I thought that like every leader needs to be like Wolf of Wall Street. Right. So I had this douche character, like this solely the charismatic reader, whatnot. And you strike me as a very different person to that. Obviously you have had so many awesome things going on in your life. But what is like this cool philosophy behind quietly crushing it? What was that about? How did you put these teachings together? Yeah, I mean, if the Wolf of Wall Street is an interesting analogy, you know, I think... Oh, I just like Leonardo DiCaprio, to be honest. Who doesn't? Fair enough. I think because of my technical background earlier on, you know, my idea of leadership was very metrics driven. Metrics are all that matter. You got to hit them. I was probably a little bit more stick than carrot, you know, like... We got to hit these. We have to figure out a way. There's there's nothing else to do but hit them. And it was really my time at Airbnb that kind of opened my eyes to a different way. Airbnb is a very people first company. You know, you look at a problem. The first question is, who are the people involved? What skills do they have? What does that look like? How do we grow from there? And I really learned like, if you take care of people, they take care of the problems. And so this idea of just like constantly walking around the stick, I think is very one-sided, you know, really trying to think about like, when's the right time to deploy the right tactic. And I had a moment in my life where, you know, it's a bit of a challenging one. We could talk about it a bit if you want, but I, I wound up losing my sister um, at a relatively young age. And I, I realized that I had spent all of my time just constantly going at 150%. And I really wanted to figure out, you know, is there another way? You know, is there a way to work and, and still have a big impact without paying for it with my life outside of work? And that's where this idea of quietly crushing it came from, of this concept of everybody's always talking about working smarter, not harder, but nobody ever actually explains how. You know, and I feel like I never wake up in the morning and say, hey, I have to accomplish this thing. I'm going to do it in the dumbest possible way I can think of. Often you try things different ways. It works out. It doesn't work out. But I wanted to provide this manual really of here's a way where you can still be a high achiever. You can still be a type A if that's the language you like to use, but you can still charge really hard at the office. But if you just change 
how you're working. You can charge hard at the office and have a life outside of it at the same time. I'm just like a little bit puzzled after listening to you and trying to put factors together, right? So what influence your tendency towards there, or if you are a freaking dictator who uses a stick, um, do you think it's culture, age, like having seen so many leaders for your career and going for this journey yourself, do you think that this concept is applicable for everybody? Can we learn it or it is like wired? I mean, I'm writing a book, so I hope oh. anyone can learn it. <laughs> <laughs> now, hey, how's that going? How is writing yeah, going? It's a crazy experience. You know, I'm grateful that I get to do it. And it's a very hard, I find it to be a very hard task of taking a concept that is something I really want to communicate to people and making it work in writing um, is, is certainly challenging, but I also find it's very clarifying. A lot easier to understand like the real core nugget of an idea when you spend a lot of time thinking about how am I going to get across to somebody in a way that is both like interesting for them and impactful in, in some way, shape or form. So I'm, I'm enjoying the journey. Um, we're close to the end, which is great, but certainly enjoying the journey. And, you know, for me, I think that like whether or not everyone can learn it, I think for me, it's, it's really about how self-aware you are. So what is it that you want in your life? And if you really have a good understanding of what that is, how convicted are you at it and how courageous are you? Like, do you actually want to make a change? And it's not like I'm going to stand here and say, hey, if you like to bang out 100 hour weeks at the expense of everything else in your life, that that's wrong. There's no right or wrong. It's just about like, is that really what you want? Do you understand the trade-offs that you're making? Did you consider other ways that you might be able to operate? Or are you just doing that because you watched The Wolf of Wall Street and you think that's the way to become wealthy? Though maybe that's not, that movie might not be the best possible roadmap for that particular approach. But that's really what it breaks down to is whether you're earlier in career, your career or late in your career, like do you really understand the intent behind what you're doing and, and, and why you're doing it? And if you can unpack that and you care enough about lining it up with what you care about, yeah, I think anyone, anyone can make a change. Well, having worked with so many founders and leaders do you think that this is a transition or could it be a switch? Because what I am worried about, and this is not like Wolf of Wall Street was, of course, a joke, but I am worried about mindset of uh, scarcity. That's a very terrible thing in life. If you are like born to compete and like you come from a different environment or something like that, it's just stuff. And just switching over into this like more mindset of abundance and hey, maybe I have a choice could be challenging for some people. So how did you see this landing with the people that you are working on, with the people that you are coaching and advising? Good question. So for me, it really started, as I mentioned, when I when I lost my sister, I, I kind of, what that did for me is it, it kind of removed sacred cows, so to speak. Like you have to do this thing this way. And it wasn't that I was thinking about this book I was going to write or the stuff I was going to work on that I'm working on now. It was more like, how am I going to cope? You know, and, and what I was doing at the time wasn't working. And so I kind of went down this path of just like extreme experimentation with like everything that was going on in my life. And I read hundreds of books on like neuroscience, psychology, mindfulness, like you name it, I read it. And if I read a thing somewhere that said, hey, if you do this, it's going to help. I tried it. I tried like pretty much everything. I tried working really late, working really early, working four days a week, three days a week, seven days a week. You know, I tried setting no goals. I tried setting all the goals. I tried intermittent fasting and like cold plunges and literally all these things just kind of tweaking and tinkering to see what would work for me. And what kind of came out of that is a bunch of things wound up really helping me like do and feel better. 
And the more I started doing these things, the more I started talking to folks and I worked on a great team at the time. They were very supportive of me. And, you know, I would share what I was doing with the folks around me. And they started to see that, hey, when they tried some of these things that I was finding were, were working, it started to work really well for them. And I got very passionate and like, I really want to try to share this with other people. And that led to what I'm doing now. And a lot of times what I find is it's easy to get wrapped up in like the cerebral nature of something like, is this going to work for me? What would it look like for me? That's all great. We should think through it, but ultimately you just try a thing. And like, how do you shrink it down to be bite-sized enough that this is a thing someone could go and try and then they can go try it. And like, it works for them or it doesn't work for them. I find that's usually the best way. How, how much time do you usually carry out this experimentation? Because, you know, I'm obsessed with cycles and like, maybe like from one day to another, you're not the best, but maybe in a week you could develop it. So what's your usual cycle? Yeah, it really, really depends. Some of the tests are really quick. Some of them uh, are less quick. I read this book about the relationship between soap and your microbiome and how when uh, your microbiome is doing a certain thing, it can really impact your mood and da 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 yada, yada, yada. I decided like, okay, no more soap and let's see what happens. So I still wash my hands, but I, I tried the whole- Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. That one didn't last very long. Probably could have predicted in advance that like this is not going to be a particularly enjoyable experiment for myself or others around me. And it wasn't. And so for me, like, yeah, there might be these incredible benefits of having a fuller, richer microbiome. Great. It wasn't for me. I don't think I needed more than like four days to know that one. Um, other ones like intermittent fasting thing where, yeah, it takes a much longer time to see, is this going to work? I have to get into a rhythm. And so what I did is I basically created something to measure the impact on me kind of in my moments. Basically every day I would just kind of log like what experiment I'm doing, how am I feeling? I would like to say it was super scientific that I kept some crazy scientific journal, measured all the things going in and out of my body. It wasn't about that. It was like, here are the two or three things I'm trying at any given moment in time. How am I feeling over the course of a couple of days or a couple of weeks? And then pulling things out and putting them in as we're working through. And again, it just kind of coalesced towards these kinds of things work for me. And I've tried a whack load of things that didn't. And so when I tend to have conversations with folks that are having problems that look like ones that I went through, I can suggest things both that did work for me and didn't work for me that they can go and try and, and, and see what the impact is like. And what I found is kind of unique. It's like not a lot of people have applied this mentality to how we're actually working day to day. You know, you hear lots of things about, you know, morning routines. My favorite ones, morning routines. Tons of stuff about that. But there's a, there's less stuff about like, how do you communicate with another human at work so you don't waste a ton of time? Like, how do you make decisions so they're really good, but they don't take you too long to make them? How do you actually prioritize the work you have to do week in and week out? And so I also experimented with a lot of these things because I was very curious about, okay, I'm figuring all this stuff out around my life. What happens if I start applying the same experimentation mentality like to my actual work day? And how can I make my work day better? And, and what I learned is that there's a different way to work. I didn't have to change what I was working on. I could change the way I was working. And when I started doing that, I found that I was becoming more and more impactful and feeling better and better and better you know, every day. Still hard moments. I was working in a startup. Those are hard lots of people at the company trying to make sure that it's funded and customers and this, that, and the other thing. But despite all those challenges, despite the hard things that were going on, like I was getting the joy back in my life. Like I was really enjoying the journey a lot more than, than I had been previously. So, you know, for anyone who's thinking about this kind of stuff, like you don't have to take some gigantic swing, just find a thing that you think could make an improvement for you. Try it for two days, three days, you know, even a small thing, try it for a couple of days. And that experimentation mentality, that curious mentality, I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this podcast or product-led folks already have it when they think about products. 
just apply that exact same thinking to why does your workday look the way that it looks? Why do you do these things and then those things? Where are you having challenges in your day? And if you applied a product mentality to those and really broke them down, would you do it differently? You know, are you just doing it this certain way because that's the way everybody else does it? Probably not going to be the best way for you. And you can absolutely solve that problem the same way you solve, you know, should we have this feature or that feature? Absolutely stunning. That kind of leads me to a different train of thought. Uh, the thing is that right now we are kind of establishing this ladder, right? There is a personal development, there is a professional development, and you kind of need both. So there is like a certain interception in between. But would you say that like culturally or just like generationally, if I dare to argue that, that this is getting momentum? Is it more important to people? How are you feeling about the future of this area, of this line of thought? Yeah, I, I mean... My personal opinion is that it's shifted and it's not shifting back. You know, is it generational? Hard to know. The world of work was different, you know, two decades ago than it, than it is right now. Um, I know that I work with lots of folks that are later in their career and some folks that are earlier in their career. And as long as the drive is there, it, it doesn't really matter. The thing that I, I kind of have been seeing is for myself personally, I felt like I wanted a different way of working. I knew that I had to be impactful at work. If you take the impact away, there's something that's like genuinely missing for me. I wanted to be impactful at work still, but I didn't want to pay for that with my life. And as I was finding a better way, what I realized is there's just a lot of other people that are in that boat too. Sure, there's always going to be folks that want to work 100 hours a week and work is the number one priority in their life. And that's great. Equally, there are people on the other side of the spectrum, you know, work is just a means to an end for them. The impact doesn't matter. They just, you know, want to go through the motions with as, as minimal effort as they possibly can. No judgment which of those is better. But for everybody else in the middle who having an impact at work is, is like really important for you, but you don't want it to come at the expense of other things that are also important for you in your life. That's a trend that I really don't think is going away. Like if you look a lot of the employee surveys that are out there, there's the whole bunch done last year or earlier this year. For the first time in history, um, the most important thing to most people in their jobs is balance. It comes in ahead of salary. This has never happened before. It used to be like most important thing, what do you pay me and all the things that happen after that. Now it's how much are you going to intrude on the rest of my life with this particular job? The challenge, I think, is that we kind of haven't caught up to that desire. You know, something like 80% of people have burned out at least once in their current job. Roughly like 70% of people are disengaged in some way, shape, or form at their current job. Like companies still aren't really sure how to provide this to people. And my theory is, you know, even if they did, we wouldn't really even know what to do with it. There's a lot of psychological reasons why it's hard to work differently than you are today. And so I think the desire is definitely there. I think people are wanting to find the right way to integrate life and still have the big impact, but not by cranking out the crazy hours. The question is just, how is everything going to adapt around that? How are we actually going to go and make that happen? Okay, so you set up a question. Why not answering it? <laughs> no, but I was really wondering whether you could provide like a before after example, right? So Jason, 15 years ago, he used to do this and this and that. And right now that I'm more enlightened person and a leader and like I know stuff, um, I'm doing things differently. And then like if you could share some of the secrets of your toolbox, that would be phenomenal. Sure. Ah, oh, man, comparing pre-me to now. <laughs> before, after. Interesting one. <laughs> I think a big thing that's really different if I was to try to like really zoom it in. So an interesting thing that happened for me is I decided I want to start working with 
other founders and executives to help them like enjoy doing the hard things of building their companies. And so I started working with these folks. It was really fun and enjoyable, but like a regular question that I would get from them is like, we'd be working on a strategy or talking through a thing they're doing. Is this right or wrong? And the thing is, it's like, I'm not some like, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. You know, I can't tell you whether a thing is right or wrong. And I really struggled to answer that question because plenty of ideas that I thought were crap have gone on to be incredibly successful and tons of ideas that I thought were really incredible crashed. So I was trying to figure out like, what do I do when somebody asks me a question like this? Like, is this right or wrong? And what I learned is, is this idea of really being clear and explicit about your intent. So what I can't do for people is tell them whether or not the thing they're doing is objectively right or wrong. What I can do because I'm listening to them and I know them and I understand their business, but I'm not in it day to day is I can tell them whether or not the thing they're doing is aligned with intention, right? So you might have this intention to increase revenue as much as possible. Maybe it's to increase employee engagement. Whatever it is, is the thing you're doing aligned with whatever that intent is? And so I'd say a big difference between now for me and whatever, 10 years ago me is I'm much more clear on my intent. I'm doing these things for reasons I understand. And maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong. Maybe they'll lead me to be successful. Maybe they won't. But I feel great because I spend time really consciously considering why am I doing this thing? Am I kidding myself? Is it for the right reasons for me? Are the things I'm doing aligned with them? And just trying to get clarity on that is, is really important. And again, if you're somebody who you know, working a hundred hours a week and having this career where you want to basically be able to say in your life, you achieve some level of whatever success you want to describe is the single most important thing at the expense of everything else. Your intent's clear, go after it. I think the challenge comes when you look back, you know, five years in the future and you realize, oh, I was doing this for all the wrong reasons. And so as much as you can get the reasons clear to yourself in advance, and just be really trying to focus on those and updating them as you learn, it can really, really help you make sure that, you know, succeed or fail, I'm on the right path. That makes me wonder, like you explained this so beautifully on an individual level that was like really clear, but what about at companies? How, how would you expand this principle to a team? Because right now, as you are describing on your book landing page, not book, because right now when we are recording, it's not published yet. And I'm publicly pressuring you. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Um, but nevertheless, the thing is that it's just like companies are like, you said it already, low engagement from employees. Then you have these massive resignations and just like people becoming entrepreneurs and trying to live their best lives. So how does it serve the business world? How could this logic be applied elsewhere? I think I often coach founders on, and this is kind of off from the book, but great area of, of conversation is there's a lot of information out there on how to set goals. Oh, yeah. Right. You can use OKRs, smart goals, whatever you want. A thing I find often is less present than it, it, it should be is the intention behind those. The goals are what you track, but they don't necessarily help people understand why we're doing the things that we're doing. So when you set a goal, help people understand the intent behind that goal. As I said earlier, maybe we're trying to increase revenue. Like, well, why are we doing that? Oh, we're entering this new market. It's really important that we get to a certain amount of revenue because we think when that happens, the market reaches a tipping point and we can move on to our next market. Great. Now I understand why we're accomplishing this thing, which gives me a lot more autonomy than I might otherwise have as an employee of the company, because I might see other ways to accomplish that intent that I wouldn't necessarily be thinking about if all I was staring at was 
achieve revenue of X million dollars, you know, a year or whatever, whatever it might be. And so oftentimes I find leaders have that intention clear in their heads, but are not always taking the time to help their folks understand these are our goals. These are the OKRs, whatever they might be. And this is why we have each one of these and making sure that that really gets outside of their heads and into the rest of the organization. So people really understand not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. And the why part I find is very, very often missing. Totally. Or it can be done like in a very fuzzy manner, right? So our goal is to educate people to live their best lives and nobody in their right mind would identify with them. It sounds good as a value, but it doesn't drive me. Like it doesn't let me go out the work, um, doesn't like really motivate me in that way. So what, what are some of the tools that you are using in your practice in order to just like get this vision? And forgive me if I'm mistaking this word, but I was like vision, mission, purpose. <laughs> yeah. How do you structure it? Like, how do you say your why? I mean, it just don't overthink it. You know, some people call mission one thing and purpose another thing and a value another thing. I mix them all the time. That's true. Yeah. They get mixed up. It's okay. I mean, if you ask somebody what they're doing and why, it's it's a pretty simple question to ask that sometimes is quite challenging to actually answer. And, you know, it's just anytime an executive is sitting down, okay, what are the goals? Why are they the goals? Did we capture it? And then talking to an employee on the team, what are your goals? Why are those your goals? If you don't understand either one of them, if you don't know what the goal is, that's going to be hard. If you don't know why, that's also going to be hard, but it's going to be hard in all sorts of different ways. You know, it's not going to feel the best trying to accomplish it. And you have no real understanding why, other than, well, my boss told me I have to hit this number. You know, that's so inspiring be, mood board. Exactly. And so just asking why, you know, maybe it's in the purpose, maybe it's in the mission, maybe it's in the values. Just ask why. You know, hey, there's an unhelpful way to ask that question. Your boss says to you, I need you to accomplish that. You're like, why? That's not going to feel great for them. Hey, great. I understand this goal. Uh, I understand we're trying to accomplish this goal. Can you help me understand a little bit more about why we picked this goal and, and not some of the other ones just to help me as I'm executing through this? That's something that your manager should be able to say back to you like, wow, great question. I don't have an answer. Let me go find out and I'm going to bring it back to you. Or here's some stuff. Here's some information that that, that might be helpful for you. And just not being shy about asking that question. Yes, you've got to find the right way to ask it so you don't wind up sounding like a jerk, but not letting the fear of sounding like a jerk get in the way of, hey, I will genuinely be able to execute this better and I'll be more engaged when I'm trying to execute against it if I understand not just what I'm trying to do, but you know why this matters to the company. Because at the end of the day, there's endless things we could be doing. We've made a choice of the small handful of things we are going to do. Why? You know, it's it's... I find that that small thing can be a very, very helpful thing to both direct the company and help people uh, with their kind of engagement as they're working their way through it. Awesome. You mentioned before that at Airbnb, you felt very good about this. It was a very like people-centric company. So is there any instance like either from Airbnb or like for some other company that you could share when this breakthrough was practically achieved. In terms of the company's breakthrough or like when I... Yeah, like why that you like were so driven on this purpose because somebody told you why in a really clear and inspiring matter. Sure. So thank you for a good example for that. I had this job I had to do uh, very, very early on and I had just crashed my last company, which was like very confidence shaking. I pretty much had all the negative self-talk going on. I'm not good at anything. I'm never going to be successful at anything ever again. No one's ever going to hire me, blah, 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 blah. Like unhelpful stuff, but it was running around my brain like crazy. 
reason why it matters is one of the first tasks I had to do was um, create a plan for how we were going to grow and, and take over the Canadian market. Great. I was really wanting to show that like, hey, I'm still useful. I think at the time I would have said I wanted to show that I was still useful to like the people that had hired me. But really it was like, I wanted to show myself that I was still useful. And so I built this plan the way I had thought about building plans in advance. I was like, what are we trying to accomplish? What are the tactics that I've seen work? And I built them up over the course of the year, working from like today towards the end of the year and their expected results. And then I said, hey, I'm pretty aggressive. Like I'm going to add a 25% stretch target on top of that. And here's the plan. So I take it down to San Francisco where Airbnb's headquarters are, and I'm presenting it to some of the leadership folks there. It was like 40 minutes of me presenting the plan and not a lot of questions back, which is not my most fun way of doing a thing. And at the end of it, someone said a thing to me that like really stuck. They said, Jay, it's a really, really great plan. We love it. We want you to do 10 times what you have here, and we'll give you 10% more budget to make it happen. Laptop shot, everybody leaves. And I left there thinking like, what just took place here? Like on the one hand, they told me the plan was great, which felt nice, but then they told me to do 10 times better. And I was like, well, how good could the plan really be if it needs to be 10 times better? I've never looked at a plan that needed to be 10 times better and said, this thing's very good. And I said, okay, fine, let's put that to the side for a second. I said, how would I actually 10X the plan? I would do that. You know, I need a lot more budget, 10% more budget. You might as well give me no percent more budget. Like I could maybe achieve 25% more with 10% more budget. And I stewed on this and I was kind of spinning on it. And I remember I was flying back on the plane and I realized like, hey, I joined this company for a reason. I wanted to learn some stuff. And you know, like if I'm going to go down, I might as well go down in a big blazing ball of glory. So I'm going to try it their way. And I said, well, what if 10X was actually possible? I'm going to assume it's possible. And then I'm going to ask what would need to be true to actually accomplish it. And the result was like an incredible A-B test for me because I built this plan going the other direction. Our team didn't change. It was the same folks. I wasn't any smarter or really all that different. All that I did was assume that this outcome was possible and then ask what would need to be true and work backwards from that. And the result was like, we didn't 10X, but it was a humongous multiple. It was so big that like the delta between my 25% stretch target and what we accomplished was like, it was laughable. And what I realized afterwards is they were pushing me. They were thinking about me and my mindset and my mentality. And that's where they chose to focus. They could have dove into any of the multiple tactics that I had talked about in the plan, but they put all of their energy on Here's this person. How are they thinking today? How can we help them think? And what are the results going to be at the other end? And I'm grateful to them because it was my first introduction to that. And the conversations afterwards where they kind of walked me through, hey, this is what we saw from you. And this is how we were trying to push you. Really showed me the depth of how much they're thinking about the people and how to enable the people and empower the people and trust the results that come out the other end. And since that point, I really tried to take a very similar approach because when I realized this, I wasn't really all that different. All I did was change whether I thought 10X was possible. And it made me realize, oh man, like have I been underachieving by almost an order of magnitude up until this moment in my life? And the inescapable realization was like, yeah, I think I probably was. And so that was a huge unlock for me. And I really try to think about that first is when somebody brings me something very tactical, first question is, who's the person? How are they thinking about this? And how can I help them? Then we can move on to the tactical stuff as you know, priority two, three, or four. And that makes us absolutely curious. 
uh, the thing is that you are talking about frameworks. Slowly, we are transitioning toward us. I'm not saying that like this is like this big, hairy, audacious goal or something that that would be like the sole focus. You have emphasized beautifully before how like the other side of life matters greatly as well. So how did you build your framework? Like how to quietly crush it without being a douchebag, without having the burnout and to just like remain a decent, happy human being? I should get you to write the, um, the forward. It'll be perfect. Yeah, no problem. So it really, like I said, kind of came from the experimentation. It was like backwards. You know, I wasn't thinking about a framework. It was more as I was finding things that were working and clumping those together and getting feedback from people around me and then eventually coaching people on it. The framework kind of became clear out of that. And so it kind of has these three steps. Um, the first step is you want to create more space. And, and this is all about like avoiding some of the most common workplace slowdowns just kind of like free you up a little bit more and, and help you deliver the same impact with less effort. Then the second step is how to align your experience. So this is to use your the space that you create in the, in the first part to really figure out what you enjoy doing and how to spend more of your time at work doing the things that you enjoy. This has a lot of kind of self-reflection stuff in it, but the number one thing I find tends to fall down is a lot of exercises or playbooks focus on self-reflection first, which is great, but we're often so incredibly busy that we don't have any time to really truly devote to it. And so that's why the create more space comes first. Like you have to find some of the inefficiencies in the way that you're working and change it so you have more space in your day to day so that you can then do a bunch of the self-reflection because it's not a thing that can happen in my experience, like off the side of your desk at 11 o'clock at night when you just finished banging out something you had to you had to get done. And then the last piece, once we've kind of created more space for ourselves and aligned our experience is progressing faster. How do you up-level yourself and any team that you're working on to really accelerate your growth? And I found when you have these things, you tend to like really crush it at work and you're really enjoying the process at the same time. You talked about Airbnb example previously, but is there like another example that you want to share to explain this framework? Because I literally had this deja vu of how it was like to work in a real office <laughs> right now, remote office. But nevertheless, like I felt that like... 10 hours of my day are just meetings on meetings on meetings. Yeah. And the other day, I didn't even know with whom I am talking to. And I'm embarrassed to eat that. But it was really like switching from one Zoom call to another and texting on my phone simultaneously. And that's just not the mind space. There's just not the bandwidth in which you could be making your best decisions in life. Unfortunately, people are working hard, but space for me is very important. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example then of the first chapter in, in creating space, which is all about miscommunication. And it's pretty, I think, broadly applicable because we're all communicating with each other. It's especially hard if you're working remotely. So the example there is, have you heard of the game Broken Telephone? Kind of played oh, yeah. as kids. Yeah, so one person, one kid says a thing to the first kid. And then the next kid passes it down to the next kid, next kid, next kid. They're whispering it all the way along. And then the kid at the end shouts it out. And it's like completely garbled version of whatever we started with. So lots of us play this game in school. And it strikes me as one of the most interesting things that happens in school, because what it does is it incredibly effectively illustrates how poor we are at communicating with each other. But then the teacher or an adult never tells us what to do about it. We all see the problem that when we say something to somebody, the message gets garbled up and then we all have a big laugh about it. We go about our lives and like nobody stops to say, well, great, what do we actually do? The impact of that is in the United States alone, they lose $1.2 trillion every year to miscommunications in the workplace. $1.2 trillion 
is larger than the GDP of the vast majority of countries on this planet, that the United States of America is losing because of workplace miscommunications. And if you kind of work that down to the level of, great, well, what's the impact for like me working at yada, yada, yada company? The average person is losing roughly a day every single week because of miscommunications happening for them at work. You're working on something, turns out you actually didn't need to do it or you misunderstood it. You spent all this time that you didn't need to. You're having a big back and forth by email or Slack or in a meeting with somebody, back and forth and back and forth, trying to make it clear, like, this is the thing that I need to get done. We just wind up wasting like a lot of time to miscommunications. And early on, I started thinking like, do we actually need to waste this time? Like, what would happen if there were no miscommunications? How could we get this time back? I could put all of my energy on the impact I'm trying to have and get back this like day a week that I'm losing. And so the core concept here is that uh, communication doesn't end when the words leave your mouth or your keyboard if you're emailing or whatever it might be. And it's like a very common misconception. We all think about how to communicate really well, which usually means the words we choose to use. But communication actually ends when you hear your own words repeated back to you. And if you look at kind of the highest danger professions out there where miscommunications can lead to loss of life. So people in the military, healthcare, if you're like a high voltage power worker, whatever, they've actually solved this problem. They literally cannot afford to have miscommunications. Necessity is the mother of invention. They've come up with a way, they all call it something different. But the core concept here is effectively like a brief back. And I became very interested in like, how do we do this in an office setting? And the whole idea is that I'm not gonna be satisfied that I've communicated my point well to you until I've heard you repeat my point back to me. And as I started trying to figure out how to implement this, what I realized is the big miscommunications that are happening are kind of invisible. So most of the time, if we're talking, we're usually on video or we're, you know, face-to-face, -face. a visible communication is miscommunication uh, is really obvious. I say a thing, your eyebrows scrunch up, your head cocks to the side. It's very clear that like you have no idea what I'm talking about. And when that happens, I repeat myself with different words until the look leaves your face. Those aren't that hard. The thing that's costing us a day every week are invisible miscommunications. These are ones where I tell you a thing and you've understood it perfectly well. Your understanding just doesn't match my intention. And so when I asked you, in my opinion, one of the least helpful questions on this planet is like, hey, did you understand that? You'll say yes, and I'll never know that what you understood and what I intended you to understand are two completely different things. I'm just like reflecting on this because it's just like this interpretation of information and not being afraid to just check the meaning, just to check if we share the meaning of this That's because this right. is important. That's right. And, and there's no way for me to know, because I'm not you, the way that you're going to interpret my words. Mm -hmm. I might have spent hours painstakingly selecting it's going to be this word, then this word. And this is so clear. And it might be really clear to me. But as soon as I say it to somebody who's not me, that has a different experience set, looks at the world in a different way than I do, they might interpret that thing in a different, very importantly different way that results in us having some kind of a miscommunication. And so the simplest thing you can do to like literally remove every miscommunication from your life if you want to deploy it outside of the office as well is to basically ask somebody for a brief back. And it can be very awkward and there's a good way and a bad way to do it. The good way to do it is to keep it all about yourself. So I don't want you to feel like you've done something wrong when I ask for a brief back. Great way to do that is, hey, can you let me know what you took away from this conversation? I want to make sure I did a good job getting my point across. The alternative is, hey, I want to make sure you were listening. Can you tell me what I just told you? Well, there's like judgment. This is like right. a transaction therapy triangle. This is best shit, prosecutor. <laughs> That's right. And so 
the reason why I think the brief back doesn't happen very often is because it can feel a little bit intimidating until you think about like, what's the right way to get something like it across. And so you really want to avoid making it about the other person. It's not whether or not they listened to you well. It's about whether or not your words got the point across that you wanted to get across. And so I would say to you, hey, can you let me know what you took away? Like, I really want to make sure that I did a good job communicating. And then you'll repeat it back. And when I hear you repeat it back, I either get to say, perfect, like, we, we nailed this. We're on the same page. Let's go about our day. There's absolutely no miscommunication. Or alternatively, oh, wow, I totally understand how you understood it in that way. It's just not quite what I meant. Let me try that again. It's just to be done framework. It's just like we're trying to get the point across. That's right. And, and you can equally use it when you're hearing something from somebody. You know, again, you want to keep it about yourself. The last thing you want to say is, hey, I want to make sure that you said this to me properly. Is this what you told me? The way when you're hearing something, you say, hey, I really want to make sure that I heard this in the way you intended it. Here's what I understood, right? And you're just bringing the thing that's in your head out into the open so you can both look at it and say, yes, like this is absolutely the right interpretation. We're on the same page. You will never have another miscommunication again if you ask for a brief back every time. The obvious question is, do I really have to ask for this every time? You know, I think that's up to you. I usually find there's some threshold. If it's a very small, not so meaningful thing, maybe you're not going to ask for it. But personally, I like to get in the habit of briefing back on anything that feels even somewhat material. And over time, I find it just becomes culture on a team or with the folks that work around you. Lots of teams I work on will just now say, hey, can you brief me back on that? Everybody knows what it means. You know, they understand that we're not trying to stop all over each other's feelings. We're just trying to avoid miscommunications and they literally go away. You stop having them. As soon as you take that like half a second longer afterwards to just confirm that your message was received in the way that you intended it to. Super simple. And you can remove this like honestly up to about a day every week that we're all losing to miscommunications. And when you do that, you can have the exact same amount of impact every week with a heck of a lot less effort, frustration. I mean, there's nothing worse than when you miscommunicate a thing, you think you know what you needed to go and do, you go and do it, and you find out after you put in all this work, you just worked on the wrong thing in the wrong way for a reason that we could have known about upfront. Mind-blowing. Jason, you definitely got the job done. Thank you for sharing all these learnings, all these wisdoms, all these insights of your personal assumption mapping and experimentation, which are the words that we love in this podcast. <laughs> so last but not least, where can our listeners continue the conversation with you? When is the book coming up? And don't tell me Christmas because it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Like we're right now, if um, if people want to check it out, you can go to quietlycrushingitbook.com. If that's too much for you to type, which I understand, you can just go to qcibook.com. You'll see the landing page there. Right now there's a pre-order up. Uh, we're doing like 40% off. You'll also get access to preview copies so you can read about all the stuff that we've we've been talking about a lot earlier than other folks. That would be the best place. If you wind up buying a pre-order, you'll wind up on my newsletter. That comes from my personal email address directly because it's personal stuff that matters to me and you can write back. We could chat about it. Um, that's kind of my favorite place to engage with folks, hear what they think about the ideas I'm working on, hear their ideas about other ways to go about this kind of stuff. So you're literally product yourself. Experience the value of <laughs> before hopping on a sales call or something like that. I love it. Absolutely within the spirit of our community. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing these snippets of wisdom. I do recognize that I have to collect them a little bit, but wow, this stuff with communication was mind-blowing because it doesn't make you sound stupid. It makes you look smarter and achieving better things, which matters. Thank you so much for listening to us and Jason, keep on quietly crashing it. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, We will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.